Welcome, everyone. Um, a really warm welcome from me, Becky Francis. I'm director of the IOE. And I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us uh, this evening, whether, of course, in person or on the live stream. First of all, just the usual housekeeping announcements. So we're not expecting a fire drill. If the alarm sounds, we'll take the doors out behind you onto Bedford Way. And those who can't use the stairs, please move to the doors on the audience's left and a fire marshal will escort you from the building. Um, for tweeters among you, the hashtag is hash IOE debates. That's all one word, hash IOE debates. And that's the way that our live stream audience can also put comments and questions to the panel. So, to the proceedings. Our previous debate looked up the education pipeline at higher education. Welcome. And this time, for our last what-if debate of the academic year, we're examining the start of the educational journey, the early years. Now, the early years have really risen to prominence over the past two decades, and we can give the credit for that to some of the major research programmes, including uh, a programme conducted by colleagues from the IOE, Oxford and Birkbeck, known as the Effective Preschool Primary and Secondary Education Programme, or EPSI for short. And thanks to EPSI and similar studies internationally, we now understand the importance of the early years for an individual's development and life chances, and of course for ameliorating educational inequalities. And we also have evidence of what kinds of early years provision do most to support children's cognitive and non-cognitive development. In the meantime, of course, policy has forged ahead with a particular vision for early years provision in terms of who provides it, the maintained or private sector, the workforce that delivers it, and the qualifications that the workforce does or doesn't have, and also um, curriculum and pedagogy and how providers are held to account. So while policymakers' prioritisation of early years provision is of course welcome, it's also become controversial because the reforms that have followed have been contested, not least the filtering down of outcomes-based accountability and an arguable focus on quantity of provision above quality. Meanwhile, despite significant government investment, there remain many other related tensions, not least the high cost of childcare and the difficulties that women in particular still have in combining work with raising young families. So as developments like the OECD's Baby Pisa come on stream, we thought it would be a good moment to take stock of where the early years are heading in this country and, of course, beyond internationally, and get some views of the opportunities and risks involved. And we've got a fantastic panel to help us mull over these questions. But before I introduce our panellists, I've got a question for the audience in the room, uh, for which I'll need a show of hands. So basically, I'm going to ask you what your top priority would be uh, for improving early years provision, and I'll give you three choices. So first of all, workforce training and qualifications. 
Secondly, funding. And thirdly, curriculum reform. So a show of hands for your priority at each of those. So those who think workforce training and qualification is the most important thing. A few. Funding. Oh, a lot. <laughs> and curriculum reform. Okay. So a real mixed bag, funding coming through very strongly there. And I suppose in a way we can say that there are knock-ons between all those um, different priority areas. So we're going to hear from our panel, of course, and see what they think. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce them. Um, sorry, looking at my biographies. Um, so to start with, we have Jan Dubiel, who's an internationally recognised specialist in early childhood education. He's experience in nursery, reception and year one teaching and he has experience as an early years consultant and advisor and he was, had a leading position and involvement in the implementation of the early years foundation stage profile. And the second edition of Jan's book, Effective Assessment in the EYFS, was published in 2016. And then at this end of the table, we have Juno Sullivan, MBE, who's founder and chief executive of the London Early Years Foundation, which has 37 nurseries across London. June's an advisor to governments and various other organisations at home and overseas on early years provision. Her work's been recognised in many awards, including an honorary doctorate from Middlesex University and the Social Enterprise UK Women's Champion Award. And then on my right, we have Helen Ward, who's a reporter with the TES. Helen covers the early years and primary education, SEND and teacher training, music and art education at TES, as well as specialising in all stories to do with maths. And before joining TES more than 10 years ago, Helen was a reporter at the Nottingham Evening Post and the Bath Chronicle. And then on my left, Dominique Wise is Professor of Early Childhood and Primary Education here at the IOE and Head of our Department of Learning and Leadership. His own research focuses on curriculum and pedagogy, particularly the teaching of reading, writing and creativity. And before, uh, by, before his academic career, he was an infant and primary school teacher, and he's just about to take up the reins as president of the British Educational Research Association. So you can see that we've got a real panel of experts here. I'm looking forward to hearing what, what they've got to say, and we'll begin with Jan. Jan. Uh, <coughs> thank you very much. Um, well, uh, interesting, uh, in terms of the box pop, I'm going to focus on the last one, which is about uh, curriculum, pedagogy and assessment. Um, what I would call the, the essence of practice, what, what actually happens in, uh, in, in settings. Um, I want to start really by talking about the book Peter Pan, in which J.M. Barry describes Neverland as having astonishing splashes of colour. Um, and, and that's very much how I think of early years provision um, in, in England, certainly, and, uh, which is, is what, what we're talking about. And it's a really good place to start because I want to start by saying in England we have astonishing splashes of fantastic practice in the UK, in England already. We have places like Oakwood Primary School in, in Leeds. 
We have places like Reflections Nursery in Sussex. We have the phenomenal um, English nursery school system, which has influenced the world. Um, Reggio Emilia was influenced in no small part by the British nursery, nursery school system. So we have an awful lot to celebrate. The, the pioneers um, that, that, that founded the, the modern-day view of, of early childhood and early childhood practice, um, Montessori and Macmillan, were based, were based here in the UK, um, in, well, not far from here in London, actually. So um, we also have, with all its faults and all the debate that goes on, the early years foundation stage, which is coveted by other, other countries and, and held up to be uh, a fantastic framework of development. We have also the EYFS profile, which is taking professional teachers' judgment and turning it into data for accountability. You know, this kind of alchemy of, of taking the impossible and turning it into the improbable, if you like. So we have an awful lot to celebrate. So the, the question isn't, do, do we not have those astonishing splashes of colour? The, the question is, why is that not universal? Why is it we come across that in those places, but it's not across the board? Um, and I think we need to look at uh, two things. Um, one is what I would call external, and one is what I'd call internal. So externally, we have to be aware that we have in England a particular cultural understanding of early childhood education and of schoolification, which is unique to England. Most reception nursery teachers, and I'm talking about the maintained sector generally, deliver effective, fantastic practice, sometimes in spite of government um, initiatives, not because of them. And a lot of this stems back to the fact that we have a school starting age, which is five rather than six or seven, um, and that the reasons for that are not child developmental, they are economic. Um, and derived from the 1870, uh, uh, 1870 Act. Now, that's a problem because we have this cultural imprint, imprint of what is expected for children at the age of five, an age when biology and science and all the research you can shake a stick at tells us that many of those children are probably not developmentally ready for the kinds of demands we put upon them until they are perhaps a couple of years older, which is what happens in the rest of the world. The rest of the world starts school at six or seven. In England, we start school at five, and that's an issue. And we have to keep saying that, because it's been going on for so long, it's now part of our cultural fabric, that people don't question it, and we need to question it. The Curriculum Guardians Foundation stage is now 20 years old. Um, the EYFS, which is you know, slightly younger, were designed to address that, but we still have in the background this idea that children start formal education, in whatever way that means, at a much earlier age than they do um, in other places. So um, <clears throat> we also have a need within that to accept that biological reality of how children develop. That age of five, that pre pre-seven age is in the middle of birth to seven developmental phase. And that notion of what we sometimes call the otherness of early years, very young children are not just like older children, but a bit smaller. They are cognitively, physically different. And it affects, and I'm sure Dominic Wise will talk about this, it affects things like reading, the sheer physicality of holding a pencil, the sheer muscle development that's required in that is developmental. The kind of eye movements, cognition, these are all developmental things which are not recognised in government policy. And, that, and that's a, a real issue. Um, 
And I think part of that needs to filter directly into how policy is made. That recognition of that reality isn't as solid and concrete as it could be, and as a result of which we have policies which um, are, are interesting, should we say. The second and um, final external part of that is the respect for early years experience and expertise, which unfortunately isn't as high as it should be. Early years is still very much a Cinderella type profession. It's still looked down upon to some degree, not as much as it used to be, but it's certainly not treated with the same reverence as other sectors of education, and it needs to be. I would argue, I'm, I'm biased, I'm an early years uh, specialist, I would argue that it is the most important phase of education. What happens in early years can affect you and does affect you for life. It lays the foundations for the type of learner, the type of skills, the type of knowledge, the type of person that you're going to become. So the way early years expertise is treated is, is another issue that we need to challenge. Um, and again, that, that starts at the top. It starts with the media, it starts with government policies and so on. But we also have to look at ourselves as a sector because sometimes as an early years community, we don't always present ourselves in the best way possible. Sometimes, the, the word kindergarten comes from the word um, kindergarten, a child's garden, which was seen as this safe place for, for children to be, uh, which is where, where the word emanates from. Uh, but very often, the earliest community exists almost in this kind of secret garden with the, world, with the door firmly shut. And we don't necessarily always engage in those debates and that discussion with other people. We need to open that door and we need to have that debate. We need to present why we do things the way we do them, why early years is different and other from other sectors, and why what matters in early years is, um, needs to be refined and defined quite clearly. Research tells us that what matters in those first, those kindergarten years, if you like, are language, physical development, personal social development, self-regulation and executive functioning. Those are the things which link to um, good, uh, good outcomes uh, later on um, yeah, across the board. All, all the longitudinal comparative studies seem to come to that agreement. So we need to start being braver and bolder and more combative in that debate. We need to start being clear about policy. We need to be, yes, um, critical of it where necessary, but also to be able to, to have the, the, the courage to engage in, that, engage in that debate. We need to have a genuine dialogue with the people who make policy about what really matters. Um, and I'm running out of time. There's also an issue about the language we use and how we define and refine words like and phrases like learning through play, following children's interests, ch child-centred education. They are contested and in some ways problematic terms uh, and, and that's an issue which as a community we, we need to resolve. Thank you. Jan, thanks so much. And Helen. Hi. Uh, so I wanted to start by telling you a little bit about one of these uh, maintained nursery schools that Jan was talking about with the astonishing splashes of colour. 
So Everton Nursery School up in Liverpool, so it's a very deprived area, and I went to visit it after it won RTS early year setting of the year award a couple of years ago. And it's a fantastic place. It's got its own hen house, has its own swimming pool. And I was asking the head, Leslie Curtis, about the um, child height system of gutters and buckets, kind of standard early years equipment. I was asking her, you know, well, what is the point of this? What will children learn from this? And she gave me all the right answers in terms of physical development, in terms of communication skills. But I do wonder if it was actually the right question, because this is the kind of thing that is really infuriating early years educators at the moment, asking them to justify themselves in terms of later outcomes. And I think this is probably the biggest thing that I come across in early years at the moment. And uh, it's what we might call the why can't we just let four-year-olds be four question? And of course, this idea that you have to balance what children are doing now, their needs now, with having an eye on the future and the fact that they are going to be prepared for SATs and even GCSEs later on, is an issue for all year groups and for all of education. But I think it's a particular issue in early years, and that top-down pressure has got greater in uh, recent years. And so why is it different? I mean... The benefits, as Becky already alluded to, is the billions that has been poured into early years, and that has happened fairly recently. It's only in 2000 that um, all three- and four-year-olds were given a part-time place from the state, which became a state-funded place. And that was because, as you said, the EPSI study, kind of, I think it was Europe's biggest study at the time, um, showed that it worked. Giving children early years education does improve their later outcomes, especially if it is of high quality. And so that is maybe something behind all that probing about, well, can you show us the benefit for this cost? You know, are you high quality enough? And one of the things that we put in place in this country, in England, to try and ensure that high quality, as Jan's already alluded to, was the early years foundation stage, which does ensure high quality because it gives that balance. It answers that question about, are you letting four-year-olds be four now? And are you preparing them a bit for the future as well? So... If that's already in place, and that has been in place since 2008, what has changed now? There's been two kind of major changes that have come in, I think, that have led to this feeling of pressure. In 2011, the government changed the uh, de facto school starting age. The statutory school starting age is still the same. But in 2011, all schools were told to let four-year-olds start in the September of the year in which they turned five. And previously, it had been the term of the year in which you turned five. And then in 2014, of course, there was the National Curriculum Review, which raised expectations in year one and beyond. And that led to Ofsted last year talking about um, the early learning goals at the end of Foundation Stage now being out of alignment with year one, which caused a lot of anger in the early years sector. And just to be clear, I don't think, I mean, I'm kind of talking about anger and conflict, I'm a journalist, but um, I don't think they're bad people. I don't think, I think... A lot of people on both sides of this debate over formalisation are trying to do the best for young children. They want to do the right thing. But I think if you were in early years where that came out, it did feel a little bit as if some politicians had said, oh, well, the train from Newcastle to London now needs to arrive 15 minutes earlier. And so could you lot up in, in Newcastle, the bit from Newcastle to Leeds, do you think you could go a little bit faster or down this narrow track? Do you think you could miss out a few of the stations? And I think that early years of people were saying, well, this may help, but is that what we want to do? Do we want to accelerate children faster down this narrow track? 
So we have the early years foundation stage profile that sits across this boundary between reception and year one, which is very broad, which isn't narrow at all. It has 16 areas that people are uh, assessing children against. Um, and, and that is, you know, that acts as a ballast. I, I'm trying to think now if it is 16. Uh, that acts as a ballast against 17. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, between this kind of pressure from year one. And of course, then what's happened recently is that the baseline has been proposed. And this is the single issue that I have written about in the early years most over the last three and four years. The baseline, there's a lot of objections to baseline. Um, it's hopped over this kind of boundary and it's plonked itself down at the beginning of reception. And it's not broad. It is narrow. It is a quick test. This is seen by a lot of people outside early years as a benefit because they're saying, well, it is just a quick 20-minute test. What is your problem? But one of the problems is that it's not about early years. It's not barely about reception. Teachers are not going to be... One of the objections to it is that they don't get any kind of information from it. There is be a narrative statement, but that's it. And so um, one of the things that... So, so uh, when I was writing about this, I was obviously kind of know that there's a lot of objections to it. But even I was surprised when we found out earlier this year 7,200 schools, 43% of schools did not sign up to the pilot that's happening this September. I thought it would be fewer than that. There were only about 2,000 that didn't sign up when it's optional, and this one is going to be statutory. So I think maybe this kind of shows us what is happening on the ground now. I think maybe a lot of head teachers are recognising this tension in early years. And maybe they're thinking that there's a different way. I've been writing this week a feature, which will be published in a couple of weeks' time, about schools that are taking early years practice and putting it into year one. They're taking the ideas from early years and putting them into year one and even up into key stage two, some schools that I spoke to. And I think if we're looking, we're talking about improving early years education here today, but if we were looking at improving all of education, early years would not be a bad place to start. The school I visited in Ipswich on Monday, Castle Hill School, they were saying, we looked around our school, we looked for the most resilient and creative learners, and we found them in reception. And I think maybe we could all be a bit more for. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alan. <laughs> and Dom? A bit of extra time, maybe. OK, I've organised my thinking into two main sections. Uh, I want to begin with some overarching considerations, things like poverty, workforce and professional development. And then I want to move to uh, curriculum and assessment, things like statutory assessment, national curricula. And, and I want to finish with a plea for what I would say is a long overdue need for child-focused provision for children in England. So... For me, a world-leading early years sector would result in improvements in the poorest children's life chances. That has to drive everything from my point of view. I was in this very room listening to Professor Ingrid Schoon's professorial inaugural. Um, Ingrid is here at the IOE. And on the basis of some of the most robust social science research, our cohort studies and other cohort studies, her final conclusion was, as I recall put money in their pockets. In other words, put money into people who, who are financially poor. So all that sophisticated analysis resulted in that very powerful idea. To give another example, um, on the 28th of June, I'm speaking at the Royal Opera House Bridge Conference. Uh, Kitty Stewart from the LSE will argue 
uh, as part of this thriving child event, um, that there's a causal relationship between income levels and all aspects of children's development. So I cannot begin to address this topic without at least saying that, and therefore I think everyone with an interest, of course our political leaders in particular, need to address poverty. As far as workforce is concerned, well, I, I want full-time nursery places for all children free in England. I know um, that that's a bold claim, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I also want fully trained teachers of the heart of this. Um, as has already been mentioned a couple of times, the wonderful EPSI studies clearly show the importance of fully trained teachers in appropriate nursery settings. And yes, I, I do recognise there are cost implications, but I'm dismayed to see that um, apparently the idea of people earning up to £80,000 to have reduced tax is a good idea, according to uh, one of the uh, Tory, uh, well, the leader, the leading figure in the Tory uh, election thing. So then, finally, in this first section, there is the workforce and the issues around the qualifications, the experience, and the access to training for the workforce. In my view, um, we need in-service professional uh, training that should be based on models of longer-term development, not short one-offs. The evidence, as far as we know, although this is a mixed picture, is showing that longer-term reflective practice is the way forward. I think um, I'd like to see a, more of a true partnership between policymakers and those with expertise in early years education to enable, deliver, fund, etc. the training. And what I don't want to see is this dictated from above on the basis of dubious interpretation of ideas about cognition, which I think is happening at the moment. So for my, the second half of what I, I'm going to say today, curriculum assessment. Well, I wasn't surprised to hear that statutory assessment reared its head. Uh, I think it's caused more conflict than any other single issue in early years uh, debate. For me, the main problem is the lack of distinction between assessment for or of learning and assessment used to hold professionals to account. Uh, and the reason for this problem, in my view, lies directly in the power that is invested in uh, Secretaries of State for Education. Where do they get their power from? Of course, they get it from statute. They get it from the law. And the Children Act 2006 in particular says that the Secretary of State must make, I quote, the arrangements which are required for assessing children for the specified purposes. Uh, and in a, there's an addition, uh, you know, an amendment later that says that the Secretary of State must consult the Office of Qualifications, Examinations and Regulations, but may consult other persons as they consider appropriate. Well, some of you know my work will know I've had a, a few attempts at trying to unpick the frankly disgraceful way that the statistics are manipulated in public consultations about curriculum development, uh, which I think is unforgivable. By the way, these problems have been known since the, the 1988 Education Reform Act. Uh, I, I, was, I was liking the history, the few history things coming up here, which I quite like, uh, where the TGAP report said quite clearly, do not confuse assessment for learning with assessment for accountability purposes. We've done that all along in England for 30 years and more. 
What would be the worst example? I'm afraid I'm not going to talk much about reading tonight, except to say the phonics screening check is the good example of all that's wrong with the assessment of early years children. Um, I think the foundation stage profile is a very good model of assessment, and if you want to try and uh, sort of challenge me on the research evidence for that, well, I would say uh, Maggie Snowling and co, whose DfE-funded work said this, teachers can make valid judgments of children's development in language and literacy when guided by a well-validated, reliable measure such as the EYFSP. In addition, teachers can accurately monitor their pupils' processing key reading skills without the need for formal tests. That was some of the highest quality cognitive, quantitative research funded by the DfE, but of course they haven't put it into practice. In my view, governments need to be held to account on the basis of the extent to which their curriculum assessment arrangements are informed by research. I want perspectives from multiple disciplines, including from the academic discipline of education. Uh, I want policy to be based on multiple studies, not single studies, or pet theorists cherry-picked to support a particular ideology or conviction or set of personal beliefs. So, the national curriculum in England. Not fit for purpose, okay? We should have a birth to 18 curriculum. In my view, the phases are part of the problem. I absolutely agree with, with fellow panellists when talk, Jan was talking about other countries. Birth to eight is the typical age range that people conceptualise early childhood. It's correct to do so, in my view. But, of course, in England, what you have is the, is the, you know, the early years, and then, then it comes up against the primary phase. So I would honestly would scrap that. I would start again with the national curriculum in England, and as I say, it would be birth to 18 from my point of view. And I also agree that the UK curricula used to be truly world-leading. We hear politicians all the time talking about world-leading education. Well, we used to have it. We still have it in, in many ways. Child-centred education, the integrated day, topic-based learning, the spiral curriculum. I can feel people on the internet thinking, oh, that is so reactionary and old-fashioned. Where's the evidence for that? Well, I'll give you another piece of evidence about that, if you like, um, from a psychologist. So Beth Hennessy, who's done a lot of work on creativity and unusually not only does science, uh, experimental work but considers the practical implications in classrooms, she advocated the British infant school model from the 1970s as the ideal model to foster creativity. Four seconds, right. So, to finish, um, I want early years provision that's child-focused. Notice the language. Uh, I'm trying to play around with that a bit because I know that child-centred worries some people. This is not simply re revising old ideas. It's a new vision for the 21st century. And if you want legal force for a child-focused early years uh, sector, then why not take the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which we're a signatory to, have been for a long time, where children are supposed to uh, be consulted in all matters that affect them commensurate with their development. And this is the difference between saying, today you're learning this, versus what shall we learn today? Thanks, Dom. Thank you. And June? Thank you very much. There's a lot of ors in early years at the moment. In particular, we have three very favoured by our politicians. Uh, we have the reading, the writing and the arithmetic. 
and I'll say that in a non-phonic sort of way. And it's time, really, that um, we began to challenge that, because these are the definitions of what is now called school readiness. Our readiness for school, our school that is ready, our child that might be ready. But we really need to rethink this and reassess this. And I'll speak about reassessment not in the, in the baseline way, but in a completely different way. Because, to be frank, we're all a little worn out by the baseline assessment conversations. I run a social enterprise. We have four and a half to 5,000 children every day. I haven't time for that, some of this stuff because the reality is our children arrive, funnily enough, at six months old because actually children aren't born ready to go to school. They're born and they're babies, and they're babies in nurseries, and they're babies in very many settings, and they are completely excluded from every conversation that ever has, which always starts at school. And I quite agree with Jan that really we should follow our colleagues overseas and start school at six. And indeed, the number of two-year-olds going into school at the moment is is horrible, and they are those children who are disadvantaged. My job is to uh, support children who are disadvantaged, and we know that if they get the right experience, they won't be so disadvantaged, but that is, it tends to fall on deaf ears. So I'd like to look at some different awes. The awe of respect. We, the blurb on the invitation today, and indeed our, um, our chair mentioned that the early years has got some more um, respect and it's been better known? I would say absolutely not. It is within the sector, but in the public, they have no understanding of what we do. We don't use a language of pedagogy, and by that I mean learning to lear learning, leading to learn, um, for the staff, the children, how we teach, what we teach, what we do, in a way that the public understand what we're talking about. Parents don't actually understand. So when you have misinformation about what is important for small children, you haven't got a public that can back you easily because they are confused. And that's partly our problem. The division also in language and the language of teaching is of concern. I thought we'd put to bed the notion that teaching and care are integrated and you can't do one without the other. But indeed, I see this unravelling before our very eyes. It's partly the debate and the, and the disconnect between settings, childminders, different groups and schools. And in doing that, we unravel. We unravel the conversation, we unravel what's important and who gets to suffer the most, it's our children. The earliest uh, sector needs staff. It's facing a continual recruitment challenge, which has been, we've never recovered from the A to C GCSE debacle. And as a consequence, we have a high uh, employment rate in the country at the moment, and we have low status. It's a fatal combination for actually attracting people in. And in terms of Maslow's hierarchy, we're right down at the end of the pyramid. We do need to retract and retain the best quality staff. I wouldn't disagree with that. But we have a death wish, guys, a death wish, because we won't collaborate. We love to divide and, and rule. We love to talk about this group is this, and this, you know, maintain nursery schools here, and private sector there, and the PVI here, and the childminders there. How can we together as a nation do what Nelson Mandela says, which is you judge your nation by how you treat your children? if we can't even talk to each other well enough and we can't agree what teaching in the early years looks like. We are obsessed with qualifications. It's kind of like a Tinder game. You know, you go, my name is June, I'm a level three. You know, it's that kind of game plan. When we can't get beyond that debate, we, we end up failing actually children. 
The other thing is quality is important. We need a respect for quality. Quality is driven by three things in my book. Ratios, pedagogy and qualifications. It is a magic combination. The OECD would back us, international research would back us, indeed our own UK would back us. Yet, we're constantly on edge about the unravelling of ratios. The idea that we won't fund the sector properly, because we're told constantly that we're given £3.4 billion a year, but it's like going to Sainsbury's. If your shopping ends up at £10.52 and you say, oh, I don't agree with you, it's actually that's not the cost, I only want to give you £8.10, that, that seems an acceptable way to behave with, in terms of our children. The consequence is there is insufficient funding across the sector, and we are all told that we're not effective. We're not cost-effective. We can't run our businesses. I don't want to run a business that is about profit, that affects our children. I don't want to run anything that is going to affect our children. And for me, ratios matter. So the idea that it's okay because you're qualified to take 1 to 13 seems wrong to me. 1 to 8 is, is good enough, it's, it's manageable enough if you have some additional support. To go to 1 to 13 because you're a level 3 or a level 5 or a level 7 seems to me to diminish the impact of the relationship between you and the child. It diminishes the idea that you can be in any way child-focused, child-centred, whatever, because you can't build a relationship if you have that many children. And if you're looking after babies, you are, after all, mostly human. You have a two hips and one lap. That's three babies at the most, okay? And that is a natural ratio as far as I'm concerned. And so I think that there is, you know, there is concern that when we start having divisions in the sector, these things undermine what we're doing and we fail to understand. So finally, we, have a, we continue to worry about uh, recruitment and then we, dis, we, in a sense, don't open up to the diversity of the sector. The diversity of the sector is age and experience, but it's also gender. We need to welcome men in, but not see them as a sort of nice and white satin coming to solve the problem, but to understand that actually good, good practice is about having both men and women together, having that sort of non-gendered approach to how we support our children to learn. So, and finally... We will continue to be a challenge once, and we will never get the status really clear in the public's mind unless we come together and unless we use language that makes things uh, appropriate. The government will never listen to us unless the public is behind them. They, have, they are followed by votes. If the public is behind us and understands us, and understands that childcare is part of our infrastructure, so when they're planning roads, they should be planning how they're going to support the children. If 76% of women want to work, and they've all been trained, and they've all gone to university and various other things, is it right that therefore we limit the opportunity for them to work because we don't build an infrastructure around what they need? We can't assume they've all got moms and aunts and everybody else to help them. That way we always remain the Cinderella sector in, the, in education. So I say to you, there's five R's we need to be rethinking. Rethink this, respect this, recruit properly, research and believe in our research, not choose the bits we like, and raise the standard. We should make those R's the rah-rah of early years. Thank you so much. Let's thank our panel. Very stimulating, and I love the idea about the five R's. That's great. So um, I'll start with a couple of questions then. I mean, we've had various um, comments about the, uh, the curriculum and the nature and challenges about uh, the beginning of school age versus um, a longer um, early years period and so on. And we've heard about um, the, the challenge to um, ensure that kids have equal starting points. 
But if we're talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, supporting disadvantaged kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, are we not talking there about a sort of compensatory support element? And just in terms of putting some grit in the oyster here, if we're not helping those young people to learn to read, um, become school ready, you know, is simply being child-centred, creative and so on enough? Would, will that um, change life chances in the way that you've been discussing? And I think I would start by putting this to Dom and, uh, and Jan. Shall I? Okay. Um, I didn't say anything, and others who argue this are not saying that, therefore, we should not be teaching the essentials. Uh, for example, I actually think that, um, well, in fact, I'm looking at a colleague uh, somewhere in the room, Helen Bradford, who has studied how two-year-olds um, learn to write. But that, that there are appropriate things that you can do with children at any age. The point is the appropriateness, isn't it? So the too formal, too soon thing can become a kind of bandwagon and a, and a kind of banner and a badge. But actually, I think you can teach almost anything as long as you teach it appropriately. So I knock back Becky and say, um, I don't think child-focused education is saying we don't teach reading or, or we don't teach these, these important things. Thank you. No, I mean, I'd echo that. It's a, it's, a, it's a willfully mischievous myth to say that earliest teachers don't care and don't want children to learn to read and write. So it's a ludicrous thing to say. I think what we're conscious of is the process of reading and writing, which are very important, are complex. And again, if we, we go back to where I started with school starting age, um, most other countries do teach some reading and writing and, 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 and the contextual work around it in kindergarten, but the, the, the serious formality of the technical skills of reading and writing tend to be taught in elementary school when children are six or seven, and those countries are literate and numerate. So I think it's about having the courage to understand the biology of learning and to understand that that does work in practice. Thank you very much. And again, we've heard a lot um, from our panellists about um, early years practice in other countries and again, a sort of later school start date and so forth. Um, turning to June and Helen, uh, which countries do we think do early years practice well and get high achievement for their, for their school leavers too? Which, which countries should we be particularly learning from, June? Well, we're always quoted the Scandinavians, the Finnish, and um, but actually, I think this is, that's just that's just a, a diversion tactic. And it irritates me when ministers come in and take us to France. Do you remember the whole ratio thing? And Liz Truss took us to France because somehow or other the French teachers could do this much better than us. And what we of course discovered when we went to France uh, was actually they had a lot of ancillary staff. And that was how they were managing it. So it wasn't actually the same thing at all. So I think we should look to the UK, actually. I think we do a very... We, there are some amazing things. And we, we know, you know, you can't be a prophet in your own land. So nobody... I think, Jan, was, you started by saying there are some amazing examples out there. There are some amazing examples. And we don't capture them. Uh, or sometimes our media doesn't capture them. And it's much more interesting to talk about Finland and Scandinavia. The best early years is contextual. I mean, the thing about Reggio Emilia, and he, uh, Loris Malaguzzi would say, it's all about about contexta and you know we we don't talk about contexta you know our nurseries, that's 39 leaf nurseries, they're all either good or outstanding if you were to measure it against offset 
61% of them are outstanding against a national standard of 17%. But the interesting thing about them is they're all in areas of deprivation. So the fact is that it is possible to deliver. It's possible to have a pedagogy that actually is enriched but contextual. It's possible to teach reading to small children if you use methods like dialogic reading. But we don't have the pedagogical conversations, guys. We're not talking in this language in a way that we're so comfortable with it, we could be talking about anything. And I think that's fundamentally our problem. So we're always looking to the better and we never look to our ourselves. Thank you. Helen. And I was going to say the same thing really. Yeah, I mean, England has got some of the very best, uh, I, I have no kind of particular data on this, but I would say that it has got some of the best um, early years practice in the world. Based on, I mean, I talked about Everton Nursery School, which were in our earlier settings of the year a couple of years ago. Last year, Penn Green, which I'm sure everyone here will have heard of, that's um, a Sure Start maintained nursery school up in Corby. That won our um, actual overall setting of the year, not just early years, but primary, secondary, and alternative provision. And I've been up there, and it is in a little back street in Corby, and they have people flying in from all over the world to come and see the practice they have there. Um, and people all over the world are learning from us. But it does need, as you've all um, given your, your votes to Becky earlier, it does need funding. And I think the other thing that we had done really well here, and I think is a, a growing concern, is, is not being done so much, is the schools need the support from other sectors. So they need that social care wraparound um, support from social services and youth services and employment that the Sure Start centres did so well. And that was something that really made the difference in England. Thank you very much. Well, I'm sure that the audience have been waiting agog to raise your questions. Um, so, as usual, we'll take questions from you if you can show us your hands. We'll take a couple of questions at a time, and if you can start by saying who you are, and also keep your questions short and sweet, and answers likewise, then we'll have more time to get more in. So, over to you. One here. We'll start with one to get us warmed up. I'm Sarah Selesniel from the London South Teaching School Alliance. I just wanted to ask the panel, what difference do they think it would make to Key Stage 2 learning if the best of early years approaches were extended into Key Stage, one, key stage 1? And what difference do you think that might make to the reputation of early years education? That's lovely. Thank you. Well, we'll start with Jan. Um, oh, okay, that... That's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, I, th I think we need to be careful here, and this is probably might go against the grain a little bit, because if we're talking about the otherness of early years, if we're saying early years is a particular phase, we have to be careful that we don't replicate that particular phase with older children for whom it may not be appropriate. So I think there are elements, certainly elements of practice in the current EYFS and that are fairly commonplace, I think, within early years settings uh, across the board, which I think are adaptable in the right context to look at impact in Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2. Um, but we, we do, need to be, do, do need to be careful that we, should, that we don't just replicate it. Um, and I would argue that we need to look at the research on this. There are studies, and I'm sure Helen will tell us about the, the case studies that, that she's touched on, where this does show outcomes. Uh, in an organisation I previously uh, worked for, that we did a lot of work 
um, as, as an organisation, looking at outcomes and looking at how we can translate the, the very things I've talked about. Um, and, and I think in those cases, there was measurable and quantifiable impact on outcomes and impact on, on, on children's attainment and achievement and progress. Um, so I, I, I think there are certainly issues around that. I think there are possibilities, but we need to be careful in the way that we do it. Thanks, Jan. And it has, sorry, and it has to be evidence-based, sorry. I'm going to go back to the pedagogy thing again. Um, I'm slightly obsessed by it because I think it's really fundamental to how we how we develop in early years and it, because uh, of us being a social enterprise, our pedagogy is a social pedagogy, but there is elements that of, of, of that that I think translate very beautifully throughout any age range, really. And um, it's rather sad to look at the statistics around the number of children age eight plus who are really struggling with their mental ill health. So there's something about when you think about pedagogy and one of the elements we have is called safe, fit and healthy, and that's really around well-being. Um, and I think there are some translatable kind of discussions to be had. I think also that would be really wonderful is that we tend to, even though um, I see Jan's point about the importance of the kind of, perf you know, the sort of the beauty of that particular sort of area. And as Froebel would say, you know, childhood is about childhood, so to speak. Then, but there is also something about the conversations. It's a bit like the primary school who gets credit from the secondary school and suddenly or other, you know, you're given a validity. You are on the, t the stage with secondary school colleagues. It's a bit like we're now on the stage with police officers because they get that early intervention might have some impact, you know, in the early years. So I do think there's something about conversations, about the power of teaching and what teaching looks like and about the complex... Um, relationships that we get very good at in, in the early years that need to be managed, I think, in, in, in primary schools, but in, you know, with different numbers and different ratios. So I don't think we, you can say, oh, well, could we pick something up and you go and teach it in the year two? But I do think there's something about a collaborative conversation that actually enriches the experience for both of us and raises the status particularly, I think, which is a very valid point you make. Thank you very much. Okay, questions? One here. I'm Sonia Prentice. I'm a early years leader in Haringey. And my question is related to that. How would you see the characteristics of effective learning to be um, taken throughout the school year? And as Dominic said, not to 18. That's a great question, and I think that goes to you, Dom. OK, um, I think this is also related to the previous conversation to some degree. Um, I mean, there are so many ways that we can judge what effective learning is. So I, surprise, surprise, put great store on evidence and research evidence that should be guiding us the way more clearly, I think, particularly at, um, in certain areas of policy. Um, but the problem is, I think there are people who advocate very strongly and very effectively, even within people we would call our friends, for certain approaches that actually, if you look a bit more closely, don't have the basis of strong evidence. So we, we can't actually say, well, that will lead to effective learning. We can't be so sure. So I suppose my, um, my thinking around this is, first and foremost, let's, let's pay serious and due proper attention to evidence of what works. So for example, we've talked a lot today about um, general aspects of early years education, very important. We've, we've touched on the whole child, 
the whole curriculum, how we might assess them. We've barely touched on uh, things like literacy, let alone other subjects, perhaps music is one close to my heart and so on. But if I stick with literacy for a moment, I, I see um, 20 years of debate at least on the most effective way just to teach that small bit of reading that is learning the alphabetic code. I personally think we've reached a grudging consensus, but I was talking to Jan earlier and he was saying he thinks it's really gone a bit downhill recently and we're all at each other's throats again. So um, I, I, I think most important of all, if we're going to talk about effective pedagogy, teaching and learning, whatever you want to call it, we really do need to look differently um, at, at the research. And, and I would say again what I said in my, what I, my, when I was talking, we need multidisciplinary appreciation. It's not just cognitive psychologists and neuroscientists who should be determining uh, what is effective, but that's very important evidence base. That there are other areas of, of academic disciplines that have equal say, and the, the trick is how do you bring those together in a way that's not acrimonious, that we can reach at the end of it something productive and that will affect practice in a, in a powerful way. Thank you, Dom. And I mean, we've talked a little bit, haven't we, about um, ratios and we've talked um, about sort of uh, workforce qualifications. I mean, I'm interested, Helen, in your view as a journalist. You know, we had the Nut Brown review and um, for a moment there it looked as though I think uh, Liz Truss was the minister at the time, that we were going to get movement in terms of um, qualifications and some professionalisation of the workforce. Um, but all of that, of course, sort of fell away politically. And, you know, what, why do you think that um, there hasn't been more traction in the early years, given that, you know, political traction uh, for quality, given that so many parents, of course, care, care deeply about it? Um, I think the, I mean, I think the issue with the workforce would come down again to pay and funding. So if you're not however many qualifications you put in place, and I think, I can't remember which study it was, but there was a study that showed this, it showed over time, the, um, the qualifications in the PBI sector have been rising, um, and, but the pay has not. And so you're not going to be attracting new people in. People who have got these qualifications are going to be looking across at nursery schools and thinking, well, maybe if I disqualify as a teacher, then I can get a, a higher pay raise. And until that kind of, that circle of kind of just assuming that higher qualifications will lead to more recruitment and high and, and it won't. <laughs> you need the pay to follow it. You can't just say, right, well, everyone will be more qualified and then we, we will have a more highly qualified workforce. But a lot of people will leave and a lot of people will be looking for jobs elsewhere. And a lot of people will think, well, look at all these other people who have got put all the time and money into getting the qualifications and nothing seems to have changed very much. Mm. And, and you'll have that coming back at you. So I think we're getting back into the realm of that strong show of hands on the funding point at the very beginning of the, the, of the session. Any more questions from the audience? One over here. Yes, and a few more here. So let's take in the round, please. Thank you. Um, Rosie Fluitt from the Institute of Education and the Helen Hamlin Centre uh, for pedagogy, which I co-direct with Dom there. So um, really uh, like your analogy of one lap and two hips, if we could have a ratio of one to three in all settings, and if we could start again with the early years curriculum, 
then how would you envisage a pedagogy-based curriculum? So instead of trying to fit round little children into square little boxes, which is what happens at the moment, how, how could we start again with a more effective curriculum, do you think? Thanks very much, Rosie. And we had a couple over here. Um, I'm Nikki Sanders. I'm, uh, I work in primary school in Wandsworth, nursery leader. Um, we're talking a lot about the hidden gardens. What's being done in teacher training at the moment to help Key Stage 1 and 2 teachers understand early years? Because it's not just the people who are leading us, it's our colleagues who don't necessarily understand the skills that we are implementing. I once got told I was having a promotion because I was moving to reception from a parent and a colleague. So is there anything being done in training? Thank you very much. And I think, was there one more hand? We just have the, thank you. Uh, hi, um, this is Lakshmi. I'm from India, and I've worked in uh, early years and primary. Um, my question is regarding authenticity, and when we talk about child-focused curriculum or child-focused education, um, well, in India, most urban schools have English as a medium of language. That problem is not a pro problem here in UK, but in India, I do see it as a problem. So um, there was a time when I was reading Nuffle Bunny to four-year-old children. And I was thinking as I was reading, what connection will a child, a four-year child have to this, to this story at all? So what would you say about um, emphasis on the mother tongue, you know, during the formative years? Thank you very much. Some great questions there. So we begin with the question about ratios and the implication for pedagogy, and I think that goes to you, June. Um, if we had a, a wand and we were starting all over again, I suppose... Um, I don't know. Uh, first, I'd like to have dinner with Maria Montessori as a starting point, and uh, that would be a good conversation, followed by one with Margaret Macmillan. Um, I think um, what's very interesting about pedagogy is that it, if it's focused around the child and around the, the, you know, the rights of the child and the focus of the child, is what does the modern child kind of need now that's different? You know, I think at the moment we're working backwards on them, like you know, it's so it's so changing so quickly. It's like what, what we're trying to imagine is what they would want. And I, I, don't, I don't know what the world's going to look like in 10 years. I mean, I can't imagine that now I'm walking around with my phone and, you know, in my hand and it's guiding me to things. Uh, and it's really running my life, actually. And my car is talking back to me. I mean, I couldn't have imagined this would happen just so quickly. Um, so I, th I, I go back to the, the idea of what is human? What makes you human? And... Um, I really like children. Uh, you know, I really liked my job because my head office is also in a nursery. I spend quite a lot of time popping in and talking to the children and asking them, because they're quite the philosophers, are they not, the three-and-a-half and, and four-year-olds. We, uh, we make quite a lot of film with them. So there's two means by which we ask them these questions. It's like dialogue through conversation, and the other is film. I'll give you an example. Um, we were preparing them for school because they were all being taken away from that four and a half. But quite a lot of parents were hanging on to them as long as they could. So we asked, you know, the usual thing in early years classrooms is uh, you, you buy a school uniform, you hang it up, you create a role play area that looks like a school, you invite the local teacher in. And uh, that's tricky for us because there's 102 spoken languages at LEAF. So, it, you know, English has to be the spoken language because there's just too many others um, within the validity of, you know, being bi and trilingual. 
think, well, it's like it's a great experience. So anyway, the children, um, the children all. Um, we thought this is this isn't really this is this really what they're interested in? This uniform thing, you know, and getting it all going. So we asked them what they wanted to do, and they wanted to make a film. And I mean, make a film that they did. And so they translated this. This film became kind of like this metaphorical, really, for what was bothering them about going to school. There were three things that were bothering them about going to school, and they were obsessed by it. Um, and the first thing was, uh, and I, Greg is the manager there, and he'd said to one of the children, they were on and on about food, and he'd said to her, but, but, but what can we do about the food thing? And, and she said, um, but Greg, but Greg, everyone knows, everyone knows that they steal your, your lunch in, in school. And she said, and he said, well, I, I'm not entirely sure that's true, Emily. I think we, could, we can probably help you with that. No, no. So you have to have school lunch or you just don't eat. So that was that one. And then the other one was, uh, this wee boy said, um, do you know, the thing is, um, you have, there's a monster at the school gate till Christmas. And then he goes away. And that was his translation. And then finally, this is a nursery school in Soho. And um, this little one called Rosie, and she said, um, Ah, Rosie, Rosie. And she said, uh, um, you have to be really, really careful when you're going to school. You have to stay on the pavement. You have to be really careful because the bus will just run you over. And it was very interesting because what we did is we asked the children, and I think somehow, you know, if we were creating a new pedagogy and if we were creating a new way of doing things, perhaps it might be sensible to actually start thinking from their perspective rather than us top down. Mm. And so I think that would be the thing. And I think it would be great to have loads of dinners on this. <laughs> and then, yeah, with really interesting people. And then, then go back and ask the children and make film with them and have conversations with them and wonder what really it is. But back to the humanity of the child, I think. Thank you very much. And Dom, Nikki had a question about training. Thanks. Um, I find in lots of different gatherings where pedagogy is the focus or, and curriculum and assessment, people fall out a lot um, and they argue vehemently. And then they, the way, the, strange enough, the place where they often sort of relax a bit and agree is when someone says, yeah, but of course, you know, trainees are just not taught properly, are they? They don't know anything when they come out of universities. Now, you might uh, not be surprised to, feel, to hear me arguing vehemently the other way. I work with uh, lots of colleagues in my department who do the most outstanding uh, early years and primary training or education, whichever you want to call it. What do they do? Well, they help students understand that if you want to know how to help a child learn, you find out where that child is in their learning and then you uh, create resources, activities, input, interaction that helps them learn. Well, that's neither early years, nor primary, nor key stage one, nor key stage two, nor, well, or it's all of them. And it's universities as well. So I have very, and I'm not criticising you, by the way, because I think it's a great question. I have very little time for this sort of rather sloppy attack on teacher trainers. People need to get real. They need to know that students are in schools for, someone will tell me the, the, the exact number of weeks, but it's a lot of weeks, 36, is it? Or uh, There's very little time for engagement in the university setting. The learning is not just taking place in the university setting anyway. It's, it's taking place with mentors in schools. And, and, there, and there's only so much you can do in one year. So let, please, let's, let's not have a go at the teacher trainers or teacher training. But if we are going to, don't forget who it was. Successive governments have increasingly got hold of teacher training in universities and 
they control it to almost to every little step of the way. So if you've got some criticisms about teacher training, go to your MP and tell them to stop messing about with it and let, let the people who know what they're doing deliver high-quality teacher training, and then you'll get children who learn. <laughs> Thanks, Dom. I, I, I have to note that I am on the, um, the, the DfE working group on initial teacher training at the moment. But yeah, so at least there is some uh, sex room, but please, Jan. Um, yeah, Pecky, I'll pick up on that question. I mean, first of all, just in terms of the promotion, um, if it's any consolation, that, that, that happened to me too. Um, I took a group, I worked with a group here as a nursery teacher and moved with them to reception. And um, I got cards and presents from the parents saying, congratulations on your promotion, you're a proper teacher now and so on. So we, we've, we've all been that um, absolutely the point you make is is, is an inc incredibly important one anybody who works in teaching whatever the age in fact anyone who has anything and is going to have anything to do with children so that's parents aunts I don't know passing them in the street the whole world probably um, it should be mandatory mandatory that you do some kind of module about child development and early child brain development <laughs> Um, it should be absolutely part of everybody's curriculum. Um, I, I genuinely feel it's the one thing that would actually make a difference to everything. <laughs> if we all truly, as a culture and as a society, truly understand what children were and what they were like physically and cognitively, some of the slightly odd things that happen um, uh, uh, may, may not be the case. Um, so yes, I think that's really important, not just Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2, but right across the board. And we're now, we're now seeing, you know, with multi-academy trusts, um, schools which are, as you know, as, uh, you know people, people are, dreams are coming true, people are getting their wish, um, which are birth to 18 um, um, institutions. Uh, and they are off, often, usually, managed by people who may not have early years experience, apparently. Um, and, but those are the people taking policy decisions about what happens in early years. And that disconnect is where a lot of those splashes of colour get dim. Thank you very much. Um, do any of our panel have any feedback for Rashmi about her question about mother tongue? Mm, happy to. Please do. Yeah. Um, I was really pleased to hear the question because it relates to things that I've not really been talking about tonight, that the whole issues around the English language, is it a uh, lingua franca, um, the way that in countries all around the world, English has this really interesting place where some see it as a kind of colonialism and uh, a controlling thing. Others see it as, as just an organic process and with human beings who will just communicate with each other in any language they can. On the specific question of four-year-olds, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right to raise... I think the point you were making was that um, how can you get a proper interaction and connection if it's not using the, the, the language of the home, the community. Um, I, I don't think there's, a, there's an easy answer to that because, funnily enough, quite a lot of parents in these uh, contexts advocate for their children to have English because they see it as a powerful way of getting on in life. So I think the best... Um, we're talking really about multi multilingual education and... As much as I know from the research, the best multilingual education 
uses all languages or as many languages as possible in the setting, plays, pays due account to them, has people who can speak the different languages. I appreciate having done actually a project in Tanzania, for example, where there were something like 10 different languages related to the backgrounds of the children in the class because there are tribal languages, the Kiswahili and there's English again. It's not straightforward, but I, I think the absolute underlying principle has to be to respect, build on, engage with all the languages that the children bring to the setting and the classroom. Uh, but, I, but I take the point, it's really complicated and it's, it's hard. Really quick. Can I just make a sort of practical comment about that? Because Ofsted, it's, this is just for you to be aware of, for those of you in this country, that actually Ofsted has got itself confused at, about this at the moment. Um, so, um, so if you have, a, like us, 102 spoken languages, then you can't really accommodate all those languages. So you can do what you can. So um, we, I've spent a lot of time with the staff studying the kind of sequential and, and um, kind of types of bilingualism, you know, and, and how p children acquire more than two languages. And we have agreed that actually English is the, is the one spoken language in the organisation. But the pressure that I put on the staff is that to speak correctly. And I have been altogether slated for, for this for years and told, you know, because in, in London we're sloppy about the way we speak English. And I've been called all sorts of things, but I don't actually care because um, children from poor families won't have the ability to move from the vernacular into the, into the more formal English if we don't speak it to them correctly. And if we're dropping our T's and we wasing and all that kind of stuff, then actually we're doing them no favours. So for me, the issue is much more around if we are going to agree that English, are, you know, whatever language it is, but in this case English is the main language, then we have a duty to care to the children to actually use the language correctly and ensure that they do. Um, hear it and, and listen to it correctly. And, you know, you have to take the flack about that, but if you fundamentally like, the, the, you know, like children and want to support children, particularly disadvantaged children, then you have to give them the ability to move from the formal and the informal and understand the difference that means. And that includes your apprentices who come to you after school at 16, 17, who haven't been given that formality and therefore struggle a bit with the idea of what is, you know, how do you, how do you present an argument and how... So oracy is a very big issue we need to be really seriously looking at for our children in school, our children in nursery, and our children in, 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 uh, in any apprenticeship model that they, wherever they're learning it. Well, Basil Bernstein, of course, famously worked here and uh, developed his theories on elaborated speech codes and so on here at the IOE. And I can see that uh, war is probably about to break out on this side of the, of the table. These, these debates will, of course, go on. Um, and I'm sure that you have different, you know, a, a whole range of views in the audience as well. This is exactly what these debates are about. So thank you for that. Um, just to wrap up, we'd, um, we, we'd uh, had a poll this evening and I don't think you'll be very surprised to hear the answer. The question was, is there a place for a standardised assessment in the early years? Um, those in support of that answering yes was 29%. Those answering no was 71%. So um, in terms of you know, the, the, the uh, feedback on policy here um, and in, in, in our social media audience, this is um, a, a very interesting uh, comment and um, we've probably got time for just one or two very quick burning questions and very quick responses if there are any last minute not really thanks <laughs> two thank you please 
Hello, um, I'm Shadi, and I'm Assistant Head of an Early Years Provision in Enfield. Um, we talk about child development, the birth to seven development stage, um, children not being read for, ready for formal education or school until six or seven. We also have talked recently a lot about mental health of both children and the adults, us as teachers, extra pressures on us and the links between the two, yet we are assessing children on things that they are not developmentally ready for, ready to learn yet, and we're also holding practitioners to account for these things, the things that children are not developmentally ready to learn yet. Um, why do you think this is not fought against more, and why are we doing it when it makes no sense for our children? Thank you very much. And the one at the back. Uh, hi, my name is Matt Costa-Marcon. Um, I work very briefly in early years. I now run an ed tech company called Learning Ladders, and we, uh, we specialise in parental engagement. So my question is on that theme. In the perfect early years world going forward, what, what role do parents have, and, and how do settings help make that a reality? Thank you very much. So, um, Helen, can we have your response on parents, first of all? Uh, yeah, in fact, um, Penguins... Um, I can't remember the exact wording of their motto, but it is something along the lines of the child is a member of a family. And they work very closely with parents. And I think that that is, as I was saying, it's, it's not about looking at a child in terms of school readiness in early years, but all of the best kind of nursery schools and, and other settings will work very closely with parents, with other support services. And I think, yeah, that, that would be a great example, not actually not just for early years, but for primary, and particularly for secondary schools as well, where parents really do fall out of the picture. And a lot of secondary schools are trying to bring them back in because we know the, uh, is it Feinstein's research showing something like eight times the impact if parents, you know, on outcomes if parents are involved. So, Thank you. And Jan, are we assessing kids on the wrong things and holding teachers to account for the wrong things? Well, um, I did want to comment on that on that um, on that, uh, that box pop, and you said no, but it kind of works into this this question. Um, and the question and the question is yes. Um, firstly, there's two bits to that question. One is, should we have standardised assessment? in early years? I think actually the answer is yes, we should. Because actually, the more data we have, the more we demonstrate the impact of the fantastic work that we do. The issue is, how do we make that real and how do we make that the right thing? Is the right way to do it as the baseline, current baseline is, by showing pictures, pictures, children, pictures of bears and saying how many eyes have they got? Absolutely not. I don't know if that's one of the questions. We don't know what the questions are, but I made that up. But it's, they're all probably as ludicrous as that. Um, so, is that a good way of finding out what children know for accountability purposes? Absolutely not. Is observing them, talking to them, making judgments against a criteria like you do for the profile an effective way of doing that? Absolutely yes. Can we be held accountable for that? Absolutely yes, because that's a process on which you build as a teacher. I actually think, and I, I can't remember, somebody talked about this, and I, I did write it down, I can't remember who, talked about the difference between assessment for learning and teaching and assessment for accountability and how they were very different things. Um, actually, I think the trick of early years and the goal of early years is to recognise they are the same thing. The things that you use as a teacher to plan for that child, to support that child's development, are the same things for which you should be accountable. And the, what we need to work towards is a solution that provides that. And, and I think that, could, along with everyone being tra trained in child development, alongside that, I think that would ease a lot of the tensions that we face. 
Thank you. That is a brilliant comment on which to finish. Audience, you have been fantastic with your stimulating questions. Um, I hope that we'll carry on the debate after this session and that you've had lots of food for thought. And please do join with me in thanking our brilliant panel tonight. Thank you. Thank you.